what we see in life and in the world. Now, today we're talking about God's existence. We can know that God exists. But how? And how do we prove God's existence to others? Today's lesson, we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures. Here's our lesson outline. We'll first start by considering a possible conversation with an unbeliever that involves God's existence. We'll then look at how the Bible presents the issue of God's existence. We'll discuss why we can and should follow the Bible's pattern in this area. And then we'll return to that sample conversation and talk more about application. We're going to see today that that theme that we've seen the last two lessons about starting with the Bible is going to continue. Now let's pray before we go on. Our great God, you do exist. And we thank you for revealing yourself to us and to the world. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this very important truth now, that you'd open our eyes to your scripture, and that you would equip your people for the work of service so that they can speak with confidence to others about you. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, now picture the scene. You're talking with an unbeliever, and he mentions something about the need to believe in Jesus. But then he says to you, sorry, but I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. What do you do next? How would you proceed in that conversation? Is his statement a conversation stopper? Should you just move on from this person? You can't give him the gospel? Or despite his objection, should you just give him the gospel anyways and trust the Holy Spirit to do the work? Or do you need to prove God to this person, get him to accept the existence of God somehow before you can talk to him about what the Bible says, about sin, about salvation, about his need for Jesus Christ? Well, this is a very true-to-life issue, and I'm sure that many of you have dealt with people and conversations like this, where there's an admission that they don't believe in God, or they don't believe in the Bible, and that just seems to shut down the whole conversation. They say, oh, I'm an atheist. Oh, I, I'm an agnostic. If there is a God, we can't know anything about him. Or, I don't believe the Bible. What ought we as Christians to do to present or prove the existence of God to those who deny it? We'll answer this question. Let's go to the Bible. As we've seen, the Bible is our foundation for truth. How does the Bible deal with the question of whether God exists? The answer may be surprising to you. As I say, we're going to look at a number of scriptures today, but we're going to start at the very beginning. Please open your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to start in the Old Testament. We'll go to the New Testament eventually. We'll start in Genesis 1, though. And remember the context of Genesis 1. And really the context of the first five books. These all make up the law, the Torah, what we also call the Pentateuch. And this is given by Moses to the children of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land. Moses can't go with them. He writes the Torah for the people of Israel at God's command so that Israel will know who their God is. They will know what their God requires. 
and they will be able to teach the next generation about God. Those who don't know God, they can teach him about him by using the Torah. Now, we might guess that such an instruction about God, a very fundamental instruction, would begin or at least contain proof for God's existence. But notice how God has Moses begin this revelation, the Torah. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surfaces of the deep, the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. I will come back to this passage when we talk more specifically about creation, but notice how Moses attempts to prove the existence of God here. Well, namely, he doesn't. God has Moses just go right ahead and proclaim God's existence and then what God did as creator. In fact, as you go through the whole Torah, you don't see Moses laying out arguments for why, people, why the people of Israel should believe in the existence of their God. Now, to be sure, there are many exhortations in the Torah for people to obey their God and to believe his words. But the arguments presented in the Pentateuch, the Torah, are always about turning to the God who is, rather than proving that there is a God. Let's look at another scripture in the Old Testament, Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, we have Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush. Moses is on Mount Sinai now. Remember, he grew up in Egypt. He was ready to start a revolution. Didn't work. He fled. The people of Israel are still enslaved and in bondage. Moses is on Mount Sinai, tending a flock. But God appears to Moses, and God commissions Moses to go back and speak God's words to Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. Now Moses has several questions and objections to this commissioning. And notice the conversation that plays out in Exodus 3, 13 to 15. Exodus 3, 13 to 15. Here it says. Oops, actually a little bit earlier than that. Exodus 3, 13. Yeah. Or maybe that's what I said. Exodus 3, 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord that is, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Notice a few things in this passage. First, notice that Moses anticipates that the people of Israel will ask for the name of the God that Moses represents, not merely accepting the description, the God of your fathers. And we might ask, why would the people be so concerned about God's specific name? Well, we're not told. One reason could be that the people are serving multiple gods, and so they need to know which god claims to be their deliverer out of Egypt. And despite the 
revelation of God to Abraham and his descendants, we know from other Old Testament writings, especially the prophets, that Israel had idols even in Egypt. They were not completely true to the God of Abraham. So it could be they need clarification about which God is their actually their savior. But another reason could be that the Israelites wanted to know more about the nature of their saving God. You see, in ancient Israel's culture, a name was not just a name. A name, to a name told you something about a person. It was descriptive. And this was also generally the view about ancient deities in that time. The name of a god was important for describing who that god was. And notice the name that God gives in reply to Moses' question on behalf of Israel. He says in Hebrew, Eyeh, Esher, Eyeh. And Eyeh is the Hebrew verb for I am. I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Now this is a striking response. It means that fundamental to who God is, is his existence. We could say, I exist, is God's name. But this name declares more. It also declares God's transcendence and eternality. He says, I am the ever-present God. I am the one existing always, in and outside, every moment of time. We talked about God's eternality last week. This name also declares God's independence and self-sufficiency. I exist no matter what. I need nothing for my own existence. No one can prevent me from being me. Now this name, I am who I am, it has a connection with the covenant name that God uses so often in the Old Testament. And we see it in verse 15. See how it says the Lord in small capital letters. You probably have heard this from me before, but this is how our English Bibles translate the name Yahweh in our Bibles. Now, Yahweh does not mean the Lord. Now, the word for Lord in Hebrew is Adonai, which is also used other times to describe God. The name Yahweh, though, apparently comes from another form of the Hebrew verb for being. Eyeh is I am, and Yahweh, or Yahweh is he is. I am, he is. You can see the connection there. Why does the Bible translate it as the Lord? Well, it has to do with a certain tradition that came from the Jews post-exile. They wanted to protect this name of God, and so they wouldn't say the name Yahweh. They would instead say Adonai, or they'd, set, and they'd use another term. And uh, the English Bibles have inherited that tradition. But if you say the Lord, that's okay. The, the New Testament uses the Septuagint translation of certain Old Testament passages sometimes and, and uses the Lord rather than Yahweh. But Yahweh is what originally would have been written. So that's why I use it. That's why I always say Yahweh instead of the Lord. I'm not trying to be weird. I'm just, I think that's appropriate. All right. So Yahweh, I should also say this about Yahweh. This comes up as a question. It's kind of like an aside. Yahweh is used as a name for God before the time of Moses. This isn't the first time that God is revealing his name Yahweh. For instance, Abraham and Job both address God as Yahweh. And yet, Exodus 6.2 says, Exodus 6.2, I am Yahweh, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this sounds like a contradiction, but what's really 
what God is really expressing here is that he revealed himself in a special way to Moses and Israel via his name Yahweh that he did not do with Abraham, Job, or any of the fathers. Now, I mention all of this to you because beyond declaring God's existence, his independence, his eternality, the name Yahweh is a, a name with covenant connotations. It has a association with covenant because it's the name that God gives especially in relation to his people Israel, the people of his covenant. So Yahweh then not only has the idea of existence, but also of God's faithfulness. It's his name of promise, his loyalty to himself and to Israel. Just as God always is, so God is always faithful to his people in covenant. And that includes us in the new covenant through Christ. Back to the original point, though. We're talking about how can we know God exists? How do we know God exists? God declares to Israel through Moses that existence and faithfulness are essential to him. And in verse 5, God explicitly confirms that the faithful God of their fathers is the I am who I am, the very one who has sent Moses to them. Now, again, this is pretty, all pretty poignant for presenting God's existence. God is not equipping Moses here with arguments to prove God's existence to the people of Israel. God is simply giving Moses words to declare to Israel, and by extension to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt. Now, you might say, but doesn't God give Moses proofs to use later on? Well, yes, he does. Look over now at Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Exodus 4, verses 1 to 5, where we read this. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, Yahweh has not appeared to you. Yahweh said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now this is interesting, and this gives us an expansion of what we've seen thus far. Notice, God gives Moses a miracle to perform. This miracle has three parts. First, Moses' staff becomes a snake when Moses throws it on the ground. And this is probably a dangerous snake, a venomous snake, considering that Moses has to run away from it. I like that detail, by the way, that I feel like it's very true to life. Second, Moses grasps the snake by the tail. This is also really miraculous because grabbing the tail of a snake gives that snake maximum flexibility to strike the one who's grabbing him. Yet that's what Moses does, and he remains unharmed. And third, when grasped, the snake becomes a staff again in Moses' hand. So, multi-part miracle. These, these different aspects of this miracle, they represent a kind of proof to help the people of Israel believe. Do they not? This evidence is to go along with Moses' proclamation. Notice, though, what the evidence is for. Moses says in verse 1, they may say, Yahweh has not appeared to you. Or, notice what God says in verse 5, this is so that they may believe that Yahweh has appeared to you. 
It's interesting that specifically the miracle is not given to prove God's existence, but to prove that Moses is indeed God's messenger. To summarize then, from Exodus 3 and 4 in the burning bush encounter, we see that Moses, in being commissioned as God's messenger, is told to simply declare God's existence and his faithfulness as essential to God. And Moses is given some evidences to testify to the authenticity of his message. There's not just this miracle here. There's other miracles that Moses is given to do and that Moses will do and that God will do through Moses. That's going to lead to the whole series of plagues on Egypt. Now, this is all very instructive. And as we go forward in Exodus, and indeed through the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, we see these two aspects. Proclamation, simple proclamation of God's existence and who God is, and evidence. These appear together, but with a noticeable hierarchy. And I'll show you a few more examples of this in Exodus. Continue, or consider Exodus 6, verses 6 to 7. You can just turn a couple pages over. Exodus 6, verses 6 to 7. Notice what we read here. God speaking to Moses. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you from my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, this is interesting. We do see proclamation and evidence, but notice the order. God declares himself to Israel through Moses. He says he'll do something for Israel, and the result will be that the people of Israel will know that God, Yahweh, is their God. We see the same thing in Exodus 7, 5. Look over at Exodus 7, 5. God says, The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. We really have the same order here. It's not that God's going to do these plagues of judgment He's going to do these miraculous works without saying anything to the people of Egypt. No, Moses is going to declare first. He's going to declare to, uh, to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh, and by extension the people of Egypt, about God. And then God is going to act. God will judge, or judge Egypt, redeem Israel, and the result will be that Egypt will know that God is Yahweh. And we could go on in Exodus and many other Old Testament passages, Exodus 8.10, Exodus 9.14, Exodus 16.6, and Exodus 16.11-12. We see a pattern. What can we conclude from this pattern? I've, I've written three points here. First, God does present evidences for his, his existence and his character. And he wants people to see this evidence and to know it. But this Evidence, secondly, does not stand in for simple proclamation of God. It's not that you can proclaim God or you can give evidence of God. No, the evidence of God is presented after and alongside the revelation of God's word. In fact, 
this evidence is not to be interpreted on its own. This is key. Please listen to this. The evidence that God gives for himself and his word is not to be interpreted on its own, but only according to what God has already declared. And really, this is what we've been saying for the past few lessons, isn't it? God's word, the Bible, is the foundation for truth. It has to be the pair of glasses that you use to examine the world. If you want to know who God is, even if you want to know God's existence and the testimonies of God's existence that exist in the world, you have to start with the Bible. All the data in the world, whatever event or experience we go through, must be interpreted through the lens of Scripture in order to understand God correctly. Now consider, without Moses declaring God's message to Israel and to Egypt, could the ten miraculous plagues of God have been misinterpreted? Well, they most certainly could have. In fact, I can't see how they could not have been misinterpreted. If Moses didn't declare Yahweh and who Yahweh was and what Yahweh was doing, the Egyptians might have said, oh, this is really bad luck. Or they might have said, this is the wrath of our own gods. What have we done to upset our gods? They would have misinterpreted what was actually happening. They would have misinterpreted that all these things were actually proof of God's existence, not the proof of their gods. Same thing for the people of Israel. They might have said that all this was the work of a, a, a god or a set of gods that are their new saviors. Or they might have even said, these are the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt have switched sides, and, and now they're helping us. You see why it's so important that this evidence be interpreted according to God's proclamation? It's the same for us. It's the same situation today. People can always find ways to misinterpret the testimony that God gives of himself in our world. And as we'll see shortly, man has plenty of reason to misinterpret the evidence. Man has a strong bias against God and the evidence that God gives of himself. So again, I say, the pattern we see from the Old Testament is, while God does give plenty of evidence for his existence, this evidence is meant to serve only as further confirmation of what God declares about himself, even his own existence. The pattern we have is to show people God's existence by simply declaring him and then looking at all evidence in light of God's own revelation. Now you, you might say, but this is the Old Testament and only with the Jews. What about the New Testament and the Gentiles? Well, let's look at the New Testament. Turn over to the book of Acts chapter 14. We certainly have many proclamations in the New Testament of the apostles and others giving God's revelation to Jews. And we see that they refer to the scriptures. They, they don't bother to argue for God's existence. They just present it. So they'll talk about testimonies and evidence. But with the Gentiles, is it any different? Well, look at Acts 14, verses 14 to 17. And the context here is that Paul is on his first missionary journey, and he's at the city of Lystra in central Turkey. He and Barnabas, they've just healed a man who was lame with God's power. And the people... See this, the, the Gentiles, the people of that city, they are overcome with awe at what they've just seen. And they believe that Paul and Barnabas are 
their own gods. They're Zeus and Hermes, and they prepare a sacrifice for them. Talking about misinterpreting evidence, right? But notice how Paul and Barnabas respond. So Acts 14, verses 14 to 17. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Now, do you see that we really have the same pattern here as in the Old Testament? The mode of Paul and Barnabas is not philosophical arguments, but declaration. They say, we're here to proclaim to you the truth. They start proclaiming what the Bible says, and then use the Bible to interpret the evidence that the world, or interpret the evidence in the world already available to these Gentiles. They say this miracle you saw is not evidence that we're gods. No, we're men just like you but we serve the God who really is. Or they say, God himself has been testifying all this time to you of his existence and his character by giving you good and by sustaining your lives. He's basically appealing to God's providence as a testimony of God's existence. It's the same as we've seen in the Old Testament. Revelation, God's declaration of himself, and that is used to interpret and bring out testimony of God in the world. One more example of this, Acts 17. Acts 17, verses 22 to 34. Very famous passage. This is Paul addressing the Areopagus in Athens. Paul is speaking to the philosophical elite. By the way, this picture here, you see the Acropolis. This is a famous site of various temples in Athens. But this little hill out in front of it, this would be the Areopagus, Mars Hill, as it's also, also called. And that would be where the elite, the philosophical elite of Athens would meet, and they would discuss various things. Now, this group of people, these elite, they likely consisted of a pretty mixed group in terms of beliefs. There are those who held to traditional Greek polytheism, many gods, and you know the temples even on the Acropolis were part of that polytheistic religion. But there would also be in the group adherents of various philosophical schools of that day in Greece. And these schools all had different ideas about God. There were the skeptics that said that God might exist, but he's ultimately unknowable. And whether he exists or not is unknowable. So agnostics, basically. The Epicureans, they were practical atheists. They believed, they believed that the gods existed, but they played no meaningful role in the real world. They were separate. And then there were the Stoics. Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God was an impersonal force pervading everything in the world. Very many different ideas about God. How is Paul going to present God and God's existence to such a group? Well, let's look, starting in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, 
I observe that you are very religious in all respects. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay, now notice that Paul does the same thing here as we've seen in other portions of Scripture. He does not dialogue, does not look for neutral ground, does not present a philosophical argument for God. He simply proclaims God as revealed in the Bible. And in doing so, let's not miss this, Paul is calling attention to many of the errors of Greek religion and philosophy. He says, your concept of the nature of the divine is all wrong. Your concept of yourselves and of the different people of the earth is all wrong. You are ignorant of the true God. So let me tell you what is really true. And how do I know it's true? Because I know the true God. And he sent me to speak to you. Notice, too, that Paul is more than willing to make use of evidence in the world, but again, with an unashamed biblical foundation and perspective. Paul says, look, even you admit that your knowledge of the divine falls short. You have an altar to an unknown God. Paul says, look, even one of your own ancient poets acknowledged the inconsistency of worshiping idols made in the image of man. So then, everywhere we look in the Bible, we see the same pattern. God's people are fundamentally preachers. That is, they are heralds of the revelation of God. We are heralds and proclaimers. And even our arguments that use evidence are firmly based on the scriptures as a foundation. So there really is no, there should not be a dichotomy in do we present evidence or do we present the word of God? We present what God has revealed. And we use that even to give forth the interpretation of the evidences and testimonies that God has given in the world. Now, perhaps you're hearing all this and saying to yourself, but how could such proclamations ever persuade people of God's existence? I mean, all this reasoning. Oh, no, let me say this. <laughs> Won't they think that we're just foolish to make such an argument? And that we're using circular reasoning? We're essentially saying, we believe God exists because God says he exists. 
And also he says that here's the way that we should interpret the evidence of his existence in the world. Isn't that circular reasoning? Well, all reasoning is ultimately circular. That is, whatever you use as your final authority for truth must validate itself by itself, or else it's not really your ultimate authority. For example, if you're a rationalist, if you believe reason is the final authority for how you know what is true and what is false, how do you know that your reasoning is valid except by your reason telling you that it's valid? Well, I believe my reason is valid because I have reasons for doing so. That's circular reasoning. That ultimately can't prove itself. Or if you're a romantic, if, if feelings are, are what's gonna tell you what's true and what's wrong, how do you know your feelings are valid except by your feelings telling you that they're valid? That's circular reasoning. So really, any sort of epistemology, that is, any sort of way of discerning what is true, it ultimately has a circular foundation. But Christianity is actually more reasonable in the circularity. It is fitting that God, as the ultimate authority and truth, be allowed to validate himself by himself. That's not the same for rationalism, romanticism, or other kinds of ways of trying to discern truth. If you didn't follow all of that, don't worry. We have an even more straightforward reason to simply proclaim the God of the Bible to the world. It's not that we're sticking our heads in the sand and we're just saying something is true because the Bible says it's true. There's something more happening here. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 23. Probably knew we would end up in this passage talking about God's existence. Romans 1, verses 16 to 23. Paul writes very important words regarding the existence of God. Romans 1, verses 16 to 23. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, for the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his indivisible or his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. For professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures." Just observe a few items with me about this passage. Notice that Paul says, all people know God exists. What? Really? But plenty of people say that they don't know God exists. They say they know that God doesn't exist. Well, that doesn't matter. Paul says, by inspiration of God's spirit, everyone has understood for certain God's existence and power. How? How have they understood this? Well, it's clearly seen through God's creation. You don't need to be a scientist to have a microscope or a telescope to understand this. 
Everyone, Paul says, has seen this truth and therefore has no excuse for not seeking and serving the true God. It's just like what the Old Testament says. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. And it's like the sun, which reaches from one part of the earth to the other. Nothing is shielded from its heat or nothing is unaffected by its heat. That's God making himself known. Everyone knows that God exists. It's evident from the creation. But what did man do with this knowledge? Paul says, man suppressed it in unrighteousness. I have a picture of a trap door here on your screen. It's like the knowledge of God was emerging from a trap door in the floor in every man's mind. And once the unbeliever realized what it was, he pressed down on that door with all his might to keep it closed and to keep that knowledge from coming into his mind. But this, but man, the unbeliever, he cannot completely shut this door. The resistance he feels by pressing on it reminds him constantly of the truth behind that door. But man has determined to ignore this truth so that he can live as he wishes, without God. Being or a man being Lord over his own life. The unbeliever, therefore, refuses, though he knows God exists. He refuses to honor God or give thanks to God. And as a result, because he's willfully suppressed something that he knows to be true, his thinking is fundamentally twisted, resulting in greater and greater degradation of himself in idolatry, and in sin, which is what Romans 1 goes on to say. This is also, by the way, why even the heathen who dies without ever hearing the gospel is justly condemned by God. Because the heathen, even the heathen knows fundamentally about God and still chooses his own sin over God. Now, this is not to say that this kind of revelation in creation can save a person, but it is enough to condemn a person. It's been said that although atheists may say they don't believe in God, God does not believe in atheists. Romans 1 and 2 make clear that everyone knows in their souls that God exists. But how do we get through to people in this state? How do we persuade them to acknowledge what they already know to be true? Should we give them evidence that they can examine objectively so that they'll just be compelled to acknowledge God's existence? Is there evidence we can present to them that unarguably leads to God? Well, no, that won't do. Since we've already seen, even here in Romans 1, man has a bias against the evidence. He does not want to acknowledge God, and so he will reinterpret the evidence. He'll say, well, I don't think that proves that, that's a, that there's a God. I think that's just chance. Or how do you know it was just one God? It could have been many gods. Really, the Bible goes so far to call unbelievers blind, dead, and darkened in their understanding. They cannot reach God objectively based on evidence because they're not objective and i say they but remember this is all of us this is all of us without god intervening 
What hope is there for a man? What hope is there for opening their eyes to the truth that God exists? Well, there's only one hope. And it's right here in our passage, right at the beginning. Paul mentions in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Oh, I lost my spot. Where did I say? All right, yes. The power of God to everyone, uh, power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. What does God use to open blind eyes? It's his word. It's his revelation. It's the living and active word that pierces souls like a sword. It's the divine breath that gives life. It's the word of the very spirit of God. God's word wielded by God's spirit is what awakens man to the knowledge of God that they already know but have suppressed. This is why we as Christians are called to preach the word. And this is why we always use the scriptures as a foundation and as a lens for interpreting the evidence in the world when we speak to unbelievers. It all comes back to the scripture. That's God's means of opening the eyes of those who don't know him. Probably a great summary of what we've been saying today is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 25. Turn over there now. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 25. Another important word from Paul, by God's Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 25. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. They always want more evidence. And Greeks search for wisdom. and want something that satisfies their own ideas. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So how does anyone come to know and believe the God of the Bible? Is it based on Evidence observed objectively in the world? No, that won't be enough. All evidence needs a scheme of interpretation. You have presuppositions. And that's going to affect the way you examine evidence. The only way anyone comes to know God is by the Spirit using God's Word. That's why Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. This is God's ordained means. And it is wise and glorious because through it, man is humbled and God secures for himself maximum glory. We could never on our own even come to God because of how wicked our hearts are. So God has to make his truth known to us and use his spirit to change our hearts. So let's summarize the main points of today's lesson. Everyone knows that God exists but suppresses his truth in wickedness and sin. Therefore, the Christian does not really need to prove God's existence to unbelievers. The Christian instead needs to declare God's word and the true interpretation from God's word of what evidence there is of God in the world. God has ordained that such means will 
by God's Spirit, save those that God calls at God's ordained time. Now, armed with this understanding, let's now return to the hypothetical conversation that we began this lesson with. Let's talk a little bit more about application. You see the first question there. How should we respond to someone who says that the gospel is irrelevant to him because he's an atheist? Well, there's more than one right way to proceed in this conversation, and the context of the specific interaction may cause you to choose one method over the other, how well you know this person, what's already occurred in the conversation, etc. But you might say, when someone says he's an atheist, you might ask the person why he objects to God's existence. And then give answers to his objections from scripture. You might say, oh, there's too much, there's too much evil in the world to believe that there is a God. Oh, really? Well, let me tell you how we're supposed to understand evil. I mean, you could even point out that even the fact that you call something evil or call something wrong is evidence that God exists. Now, you can deal with his objections, but if they're endless, if he's not really listening to what you have to say, you might point out to him that the real issue is his rebellious heart as the Bible says, and then if he's willing, talk to him about the gospel. Look, I can answer your questions and your objections all day, but the real thing you need to understand is about your need for a new heart. You might say that to him. You might say also or instead that the Bible says that all people, himself included, yes, even this proclaimed, self-proclaimed atheist, actually know that there is a God. But the reason that we reject this knowledge is because of our love of sin and self which is what Jesus came to save his people from, from sin and from self, and to give them a new heart. And you can tell him the gospel. You might say uh, that the Bible clarifies the testimonies that God gives about himself in the world, creation, conscience, God's providence. You say, you don't believe there is a God? Actually, God has given testimonies of of his existence in the world. And the Bible tells us about those testimonies. You can share that with him. And you can say, God holds us accountable for this knowledge, and therefore we have to give a proper response. And that is by believing the gospel. And you can, you can share the gospel. Or you might simply tell him that when he says he's an atheist, oh, you're glad that he told you that. Because you can testify to him that there is a God. And that God has graciously made himself known to you, and therefore he's now making himself known to this atheist. Again, these are just example responses that I thought of. You don't have to say any one of those exactly. But understand the main point. Hearing that someone is a self-declared atheist or an agnostic is not itself a closed door to the gospel. You still can proclaim God to them and even show them how they can see the evidence of God in the world by understanding the scripture. Now, I'd like to pose a follow-up question to that. That's question number two on your screen. Why is it that we as Christians are sometimes more comfortable trying to reason God's existence without using the Bible than with using the Bible? Someone says, you know, prove to me, prove to me God without using the Bible. You almost feel like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll I'll engage in that. Why, Why do we feel comfortable doing that and maybe less comfortable using the Bible? I think the answer is because it seems wiser according to a worldly understanding. It might just be that we haven't really thought about it. We want to love this person. We say, okay, this is the way I can love that person. But 
the reason we're inclined to set the Bible aside because it seems wiser according to the world standards. It seems more acceptable. It's going to result in, we think, less opposition and persecution. And so we're going to try and prove God without the Bible. But that's a trap. Don't fall into that trap. One thing Answers in Genesis often says is true, and that is there is no such thing as neutral ground. I want to say, I'm objective, prove to me God without using the Bible. But that's impossible. In fact, it's really misleading. When someone says, prove God without using the Bible, they presuppose that the Bible is unnecessary, irrelevant, or wrong for, your, uh, for life and for understanding the world. But you're not going to be able to prove that the, the Bible is necessary and is relevant and is true based on those terms of argumentation. You can't interpret the world without the Bible. You can't interpret the evidence without the Bible. You need the Bible because it's God's word. We know that without God's word, you cannot properly make sense of the world. God's word is the only reliable foundation for truth. So though it seems wiser in the world's eyes to try and argue for God apart from the Bible, it's not going to it doesn't honor God, first of all, to do that. And second of all, it's not going to be effective. You need the revelation of God. And they need the revelation of God. Let us say with Paul that we are not ashamed of the gospel and of the word of God in general. I mean, gospel can be used really as, as a synonym for the word of God in some respects. We're not ashamed of God's word. We're not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Reason is good. Experience is good. But only on the foundation of the Bible. On their own, they're not going to they're not going to be able to do what we want them to do to persuade people of God's existence and of the gospel. Number 3. As a Christian, how do you know for yourself that God exists and the Bible is true? You say, "Okay, this is the way we refer to the people who who are unbelievers and atheists." This is the way we try and present to present God's existence in the gospel to them. What about us? How do I know that God exists? Now that I'm a Christian. Well, it's the same way. It's not like you begin one way, you believe, and then you have a different way of understanding God's existence. Uh, yeah, I just accepted it by faith at first. I accepted it because God's spirit testified of it at first. But now I believe because it's very reasonable according to the world's understanding. It's the same situation for us as Christians as it was for us when we needed to hear the gospel. God has given, I want to acknowledge, God has given many testimonies to the truthfulness of the Bible and for his existence, and these are encouraging to us. I don't want to minimize these things, things like biblical archaeology, a science that accords with what the Bible says, you know, scientific um, conclusions that accords with what the Bible says, or... Uh, just even understanding, again, this is in the realm of science, things like DNA and uh, various aspects of the cosmos. You say, oh, this is so wonderful, so beautiful, so complex. This is, this is just more proof that God exists. Yes, it is. And that's encouraging to us. But ultimately, we believe because God has opened our eyes to what our souls always knew but would not accept. We believe because God graciously gave us the faith to believe. We believe, we believe because God opened our eyes to see him and to hear him in the Bible. We recognize his voice when we read the scriptures. That's what Jesus said, right? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. 
We believe because God gave us his Holy Spirit. When you come down to it, that is the reason. It's not because, oh, you know, it's just so very reasonable or the probabilities were just so great. Those are just testimonies. Ultimately, it was God himself who opened our eyes. And it's just by his Holy Spirit. We say, I know that this is true. I can't help but recognize it because God's Spirit has made it known to me. If we say it's anything else, then we've diminished the gospel. Really, God had to do it all. We believe because God caused us to believe. That's why he gets all the glory. That's why we're so grateful to him. And that's why we use the gospel, we use God's word through prayer and and the power of God's spirit to persuade others of God. It's the same for them as it is for us. They need to believe by God's word and his spirit opening their eyes, just as he did for us. Okay. Any comments or questions on today's lesson? Is that a hand in the back? Go ahead, Roy. Right, yeah. Thank you so much for those comments, Roy. Just to repeat them briefly. So you pointed at what we've been saying today accords with Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says that the the God of this world has blinded the the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And you also pointed to Ephesians 6, where we are reminded that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yeah, sometimes we want to think, and again, I think this is a a pressure from our society that the problem is merely intellectual. Oh, if I could just get them to see uh, reason that uh, that God exists, then then they'll understand and be saved. Well, yeah, reason is a tool that God uses us, but it's not merely an intellectual issue. It's not merely an issue of the mind. It is an issue of the spirit. Because as these verses say, and as the others we've looked at today, Man has suppressed the truth of God. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. You have the spiritual forces of wickedness working against the truth. So that's why we must arm ourselves with the truth. That's why, just as you were saying, Roy, we have to rely on God's spirit. That's why we pray. That's why we use the gospel. 
those are God's ordained means. Those are our spiritual weapons for casting down the fortresses. So yeah, thank you for those comments, Roy. Any other questions or comments? Yes. I heard the first part of what you said. Could you repeat the second part a little bit more loudly? Right, yeah. It, it, thank you for noting that scripture. Um, in thy light, I, I believe you said it's from the Psalms, in thy light we see light, in your light we see light. And that's the same thing that in Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Without the light of scripture, we can't examine the evidence properly. See, that's why um, I think it's so unfortunate that, that we sometimes think that we can give lots of evidence and that will persuade the uh, unbeliever to believe. And I'm frustrated with that, not because giving evidence is really bad. No, <laughs> we see God is giving evidence of himself even in the scripture, not just in the words of scripture, but he says, look at, this, look at this thing in the world. Look at this prophecy that I gave that was fulfilled. Look at this mighty work that I did. But the problem is it's got to be, just as you said, it's got to be looked at in the light of God. And without that light, man's heart is so wicked and uh, our minds are so um, weakened due to the effects of sin that we're just going to, we're going to miss it. We're going to find a way to explain away the evidence. Yes, Dwayne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for noting that, Dwayne. Just to repeat briefly, you refer to that scripture at the end of Luke chapter 16. In that report of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man saying, send Lazarus back from the dead to my brothers so that they don't come to hell, to this place where I am in. And Abraham responds to him on behalf of Lazarus, let them believe the scriptures. If they don't believe what Moses wrote, if they don't believe what God wrote in the Bible, it won't matter if somebody rose from the dead. They still won't believe. But just as you said, Dwayne, this is more, uh, more of a testimony that we need to use the word. That, that, is the, uh, that is the means of God to open up the mind and the eyes of someone who does not believe. And even, even evidences are evidences by themselves and really no no single piece of evidence is going to be decisive to turn someone to God. God has to open their minds and he uses the scriptures to do that. So thank you for mentioning those scriptures. I think they're all really great uh, echoes of what we've been talking about today. We're out of time, so we'll close down the lesson, but I hope that you're seeing, I hope you're humbled and encouraged by today's lesson. Uh, next week, we're going to talk more about God and one of those amazing and hard to grasp qualities. Another thing that shows the great glory and transcendence of God, and that is that God is Trinity. God is Trinity. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Let's close in prayer.
our great God, we thank you that just as your son Jesus said, you have hidden these things from the minds of the great and the wise, and you've revealed them to children. You revealed them to us. We were weak. We were not the, the great of this world, and yet you revealed them to us. Thank you so much, God. We didn't deserve that. We pray, God, that you would open many more hearts and eyes to understand and believe. Lord, salvation is all of you, but we're glad that we can be a part of it. So use us, God. Make us bold with your word. Make us full of love for others so they might see and believe. Open their eyes, we pray, God. Use us to do it. Give yourself the glory. Pray to you. Bless the church and the rest of the service today. In Jesus' name, amen.